And now we are at verse 3. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on an Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, okay? So he's headed uh, for Macedonia, so he wants Timothy to remain and take over the overseer's position. Paul was acting as apostle and pastor or overseer for the whole gathering. They had other overseers and teachers, but he was the main one because he was apostolic. Uh, His view would supersede any of the others, and he could correct and instruct them. And so he's telling Timothy, you're to do that while I'm gone, because Timothy had been with him and knew him and had been instructed by him. Titus also. So Timothy was to instruct and teach sound doctrine, sound teaching. For some were bringing in strange and new teachings or doctrines, not according to the true gospel. And that's what he wanted to deal with. We have to remember there were a lot of home churches. There were no big gatherings, except for some time when some of the assemblies at home gathered together. So we had often false people come in, Judaizers, that's who we're going to deal with. Some of them believed to a degree that Jesus was the Savior, but then they also believed you have to be circumcised and keep the law. So it's speaking out of both them out. How can Jesus be your Savior, and yet if you don't keep circumcision and the law, you can't be saved? So it's sort of confusing. But many of them, they believed Jesus was a teacher and a prophet to a degree but not to the degree that the true Christian believed. So they came in to pervert and to alter and try to convince the Christians to come back under the law. And so those are the ones that Paul had no sympathy with. And we find that he made strong statements when they kept emphasizing they must be circumcised, the Gentiles that come to the Lord. He said he wished they would slip with the knife and castrate themselves. He meant it when he said that, that you would pervert the gospel. You see, they were trying to, the law was abolished and fulfilled as far as the ceremonial law. And he didn't want to bring Christians, Gentiles under that. And even Peter said, we could not even keep those things when they made a decision. James and the church, when they examined Paul's ministry and said, you're not to bring them under the bondage of the law. And Peter said, for we couldn't even keep all the rules. And he made it very plain. So Paul was preaching to the Gentiles, and they were not to be brought under the Jewish law of rules and regulations and ceremonies, which were many. Okay. And so he says, they're coming to teach strange doctrines. And four says, and you're not to pay attention, you're to disregard these myths and these endless genealogies which give rise to just speculations rather than further administrations of God, which is by faith. The Jewish Talmud, Jewish writings, they often contradicted each other and argued and sometimes didn't give a clear answer on anything, and that's what he's talking about. But he's talking about, too, the genealogies. They were important as far as Christ, until he was revealed who he was. After that, there was no recording 
who descended from who as far as the Gentiles. And Paul didn't expect that the new Jews within the Roman Empire, they didn't have to keep a lot of these records, but mainly the Gentile Christian was freed from all of that. It was mainly to prove who Christ was and that he came through the proper line according to the prophets. But once the new covenant came into being, it was not necessary anymore. It was part of the old covenant, which the new was built on. So he says, disregard. Don't give them any attention for their myths. Myths are fables and lies and endless genealogies. The Judaizers were mixing with the true Christians. There were spots in their fellowship and love feasts. And they came from Jewish fellowships and Jewish synagogues, and they had no bearing on Christianity. Only until Christ were these records kept to prove that Jesus came through the line of David, both humanly from Mary, she could trace all the way back to David, and even Joseph, which was his stepfather. But according to the law of Moses, Joseph was the father of Jesus, and he could trace his lineage back to David, as the law required both, and it was done, okay? But they were fulfilled, and anything after that was useless and vain and had no practical place in Christianity, because Christianity was for the Jew, the Gentile, everyone. It was not exclusively Jewish. The Jewish had to come by faith the same as the Gentile. Jesus broke the wall, and he offered the gospel to everyone, and there were no favorites anymore. The Jew forfeited their standing with God, And finally, in 70 AD, God destroyed the whole system and a lot of the people, and he didn't want it going on. He let it go on for 40 years so that the apostles could witness to the Jewish people, and that's why Paul went to Jewish synagogues two or three Sabbaths wherever he went. But after the destruction of the temple, you don't find Christians going to synagogues anywhere in the They had to come the same way a Gentile came. They had no privileges. And if anything, they were becoming more perverted and not adhering to the true law and the law of Moses. They started, again, like the Pharisees, adding all their traditions and everything else that had no basis in the Word of God, old or uh, new. So in our earthly relationship, everything's based on faith in Christ. Whether you're a Jew, a Gentile, male, a female, bond, or free. These are earthly standings, but in the spirit, they do not have much basis. But God recognizes certain earthly standings from the natural world. We have to obey governments. We have to honor the kings and the leaders. Uh, Women have to submit to the men on various things. They still stand. Slaves had to obey their masters, and Christians had slaves at that time. Some of them freed them, but they were to treat them as their brother. There was no commandment to free them by the Lord. It was allowed. So their natural life was different. But in the Lord, there was neither bond nor free. And that's why Christian owners of slaves were told, you have to treat your Christian slaves like they're your brothers 
so you could not abuse them and misuse them. But as a husband ruled his wife, they could rule their slaves and use them for the matters of work and other things they needed. This was permitted under the system. So a lot of this independence and freedom movements today, they don't have no basis in scripture. They're liberty and license for everybody. And when they do that, it becomes a license to sin. God wants authority and submission and various orders. And the Christian was told to submit to all authority in the natural realm and not to oppose it and to honor certain things. And he still expects this, okay? Okay. But in the spirit realm, the least Christian has a standing as a child of God as the greatest ministry or Christian in the world. They have different ministries, different callings, but they're in the children of God's bracket. So we have to be careful how we treat anybody. They say, do good unto all men, especially to the household of faith. Christians are held more accountable for how they treat true Christians than the sinner. Many of these evangelists walk right over a Christian and go out of their way to get a sinner saved. They think, well, I got him saved. No, you didn't get him saved. You treat your false gospel. You're to disciple and mature him, and he's more important to God than the person practicing sin. Now, he wants the gospel preached to him, but in standing, that person that's a born-again Christian has a greater standing and privileges the sinner is an enemy of God under his wrath, even though God has goodwill. That's the love of God, benevolence, good intentions. But it's not covenant love. And it says in those who do not submit to Christ, Jesus said the wrath of God remains on them. His anger and hatred toward their sinning and toward them, if they persist in extreme evil, he still has this. He doesn't have that toward the Christian. Even the misguided, he will correct and chasten. And then if they do not conform, he will cut them off. So we have a different privileges than standing. And as Paul found out, God's saying, whatever you do to my own, you do to me. So if you treat the center of the world better than a true Christian, you're in trouble because you're treating Christ disrespectfully. Okay? Verse 5, but the goal of our instruction, our teaching, instruction is teaching. It's of various forms. Instructional teaching is sometimes the slowest and often can be boring. Remember when Paul was doing it all night, a young man fell off three stories in some barn and killed himself. He fell asleep. It was boring to him. So a lot of inspiration, but the teaching sounds. And that's what we're to study as Christians, the Word of God. We don't have the Spirit moving on us every time we read the Bible. We have to labor and study at it. But when he's teaching publicly at times, the teacher can be inspired to exhort and to prophesy. Now, all teaching, all teaching inspired is prophecy. Simply means the Holy Spirit's moving on it. But studying and instruction That can be done at any time, any place, night or day, and we can be enlightened by the Spirit while we're doing this. But it doesn't mean we feel His presence and He's moving everywhere. It's hard work. 
And people don't like laboring in the word. And that's why they don't get anything. But when a teacher teaches publicly, at times he should be inspired and the spirit should move him and people should be disturbed. The spirit should and should bother them and exhort them to do good. And they'll say, oh, that was for me. They sense the spirit was dealing with them. So that happens more in the public when the two and three Christians gather together. But when we individually study and pray over God's word, it can be boring. It can be not exciting. But we learn and we need the basic knowledge before we can get experience in certain things. So we do need mental assent if we're going to obey it. We do need the knowledge of God's word if we're going to submit to it. But if we're not going to submit to it, it ain't done as a bit of good. I mean, I knew of a person, studied the Bible and read through it over a hundred and some times, and I thought, well, isn't that wonderful? And he was living a perverse sexual life for years, and he still believed he was a Christian. I said, well, obviously, he had mental knowledge, and it was perverted because it didn't instruct him into godliness, didn't do him a bit of good to read the Bible all that time, because it produced no fruit. It produced no godly living. So what good was it? And he'll just be judged heavier because he had the opportunity to examine what he was reading and let it disturb him, but he didn't. So that's what happens to theologians. Many well-known theologians, they're not Christians. They think they are, but they're not. They're full of pride and arrogance. Their school of theology is just based on a particular denominational bent. They twist scripture, emphasize some scripture, and underemphasize the sound truth. They're like Pharisees. And Jesus said it. He told the Pharisees, he said, how can you escape the damnation of hell? You lay aside the word of God for your traditions. So when a denomination does that, you don't refuse that. I don't care if you're a part of it. You say, that's error, it's demonic, and I can't submit to it. And that's why there are not many sound Christians in many of these denominations. And it's getting darker and darker as the Lord's coming will be sooner than people think. So the goal of our instruction, the purpose of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Okay, we'll get into that. The aim or purpose of apostolic teaching is spiritual. Love of God and love of the body of Christ foremost. From a pure heart, the word heart is always referring to the spirit of man. He's spirit, soul, and body. Not separated. The spirit soul is you. It's the personality. The spirit and soul go to heaven together or they go to hell. They're like the diamond. They just have different facets and different functions. Okay? And so a pure heart means a pure spirit. A person that's mind and will is submitted to Christ and has been cleansed from sin. That's how you get a pure spirit. The spirit of man is to be cleansed and made right. And it will be in unity with Christ. That's what he does when he joins a person. When the Holy Spirit enters the temple, he cleanses it first. 
He cleanses the Christian from all past sin, from original sin, from any power over him. But it doesn't mean that it's permanent. No, he has to continue in that state or he can forfeit it, okay? And that's why we continue with the Lord and that's why we have spiritual warfare and fight the devil and the world, the flesh, that try to drag us back into that kingdom, okay? So the love from a pure spirit, Christ's love is in us and is to be moving out of us to the body of Christ and to the world. Then a clear conscience, a good conscience, okay? The conscience is part of the man's spirit, the human spirit. It can be truthful. It can be limited in knowledge. Paul said that some Christians could not do certain things because their conscience bothered them. They could not eat and drink certain because they came out of Judaism and was raised that way. And he said, and you don't tell them to go against their conscience. Until their conscience is enlightened with the truth, it's a sin for them not to keep doing it. So he said, whatever is not of faith is sin. So if you don't do it with liberty and understanding of Scripture, even if it's right or wrong, and even if it's right, it's sin to you. See, he's telling the Christians, leave them alone. When they grow in the Lord, they observe Sunday. A lot of people still do. They think the Christian think they're bound to Sunday. That Lord changed the Sabbath, Saturday to Sunday. He did not. People worship differently, but we'll find the Christian is an eternal Sabbath. Every day is the Sabbath to the true Christian. We're not bound to any days. We can choose days to worship and gather together. That's our right. Okay, but we're not bound to that kind of bondage. Okay, so let's go to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Okay, that's what God does when a person's born again, when they're regenerated. He purges their human spirit from all sin, all past, the present's different in the future. But he cleanses and removes it from them. Then the spirit can indwell them and be unified. The spirit of Christ joins our spirit and is yoked with us. But the will is not altered. It finds the new man is easier to yield to, and he gives us power to overcome the old nature that still tries to rise up. The old man's still there. He just cannot be allowed to rule. He's in our members. And when we're raptured and the mortal takes on immortality, the old is left. It doesn't go into the new nature. But now we attempt it by the world, the flesh, and the devil. We still have to contend with the old man, and we're to practically put him to death. So Paul says, you keep him dead. He's been judged by Christ at the cross, and you have the power to not let him rule over you. Sin shall not have dominion over you. That's if you don't let it. But if you let it, it will. See, you have the power of the will to yield to the new man or to yield to the old. The will is never altered. He strengthens us and gives us abilities, but he doesn't do it. He doesn't override 
the human will and the human personality. We always have that will to do that. That makes us distinct and different. And that's why God can judge all. They're responsible for what they do. So they're freed from all dead works. They couldn't do no spiritual works without Christ. They couldn't do it. And so they're called dead works. They don't produce nothing spiritually, but to serve the living God. Now they can please the Lord by obeying him and yielding to the spirit of grace. They can bear fruit. And that's what he expects. And so we go back, a pure heart, pure spirit, a good conscience, because it's been cleansed from evil, and a sincere faith, okay? Faith in Christ, faith in his cleansing and righteousness in him, and to be good and pure in our lifestyle. That's what he expects in this faith. That's what James was saying. If you don't love the brethren and you don't help your brethren in need, can this kind of faith save you? The rhetorical was no. You can confess Jesus all day long. But if you're not loving the brethren and helping people, it's not being demonstrated. And he said, and I'll show you my faith by my works. So it's the fruit and the obedience that proves your faith. Faith proves nothing. Mental assent proves nothing. Everybody says, Lord, Lord. Most people that claim to be Christians are not, but they do believe Jesus is the Son of God, and he died on the cross, and they believe he's their Lord, but they're not following him, and they've not been regenerated, and the Spirit's not leading them. So it's merely mental ascent religion. It produces no spiritual results. Okay? Okay, then he says, 6, verse 6, for some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussions. It's a continuum, but we're going to deal with this part. So there are true Christians that are misled by false teachers, and God will deal with them and discipline, and if they don't respond, they will be cut off. He won't tolerate. But some of them are real Christians at one time, and then they've strayed. They've gone aside. They've turned back. And the Judaizers were succeeding to some degree in Galatian church. And Paul said, what happens? You've gone back to the law. He said, I have to pray that Christ is formed in you again. He implied they lost their salvation. They went back to the law. And he said, you forfeited Christ. And you need to be saved again. False teachers and heresy must be. Paul said they are to challenge and to test that which is true. So everybody's going to be tested at time and have to stay with the truth, have to build on the truth, believe the truth, and obey the truth. And they're going to be tested. And some and the time we live in, and it's getting worse, said they will fall away. Many will fall away, or some from the faith, giving heed to evil spirit. The true faith, he talked about the churchgoers and the nominations. He talked about true Christians will fall away as it gets darker and darker. And they will be given over to false teachers and prophets, and they will believe false heresy. But they once knew the truth. They once were born again. They once were led of the Lord. And then the branch was cut off because they did not abide in Christ's teaching. Okay? 
And so we see some have been misled. They've fallen away from spiritual things. They turn aside, uh, leaving sound teaching to foolish and fruitless discussions and things that have no value or spiritual purpose. And they're talking mainly about Judaizers here, bringing in their teachings, their interpretations of the Old Testament, which most of them were false and misguided, and they never came to any sure they teach you all this, and you get to the end and they ain't said nothing. They can't prove nothing. Just wranglings about nothing. And he said, that's what's happening. And you don't want to be listening to this. Now go to Titus chapter 1, 10 and 11. Verse 10 says, these are many rebellious, insubordinate idle talkers, vain talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the Jews. That says circumcision. He's referring to the Jews, the Judaizers, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert or dissuade or deceive. Whole households are convinced by them at times, teaching things which they ought not to for the sake of dishonest gain. So many of them are doing it for money. They want to support, they want to be a teacher, and by doing this, they expect to be supported, and they bring the law that they should be given money. Well, see, the New Testament teacher, the scripture teaches they were to be supported, but they were not to ask for money from people. It's a people's responsibility. Apostles could reprove them, but they didn't make a big issue of money. As Paul didn't when he evangelized, some areas he didn't take their money. He wanted to get converts first. Then as they were trained in Christianity, they understood it was their duty to support the traveling evangelists and apostles. But he didn't begin with this. He didn't make, well, these Judaizers, everything was based on money and getting more money. And so you can see why their reputation, okay? And he called them later. He said they were liars, many of them. So Paul didn't mince no words. He's telling Timothy the same thing. Watch out for these people, okay? And they were doing damage. And those who fall away are responsible, even baby Christians. They should be listening to sound teachers that they had available, but they were persuaded. And they thought they were spiritual, that they could discern, and they couldn't discern. And because they weren't obeying and following instruction, the Holy Spirit was not giving them enlightenment. When I was a, a newborn Christian, after uh, even during the first year, I recognized certain false teachers that were popular for years. And many people fell for them. I never fell for them because I listened to the Spirit then, and he said, don't have nothing to do with this person. I had nothing to base it on except for the Spirit telling me you're not to listen to him. And then years later, I understood why I wasn't to listen. He taught and perverted the scripture and twisted it. And millions were following him. But I didn't follow him. And see, God would instruct even baby Christians, he can bear witness. They may not understand fully what's going on, but their conscience will tell them, don't mess with this. And then they can get instruction later. But obviously, these people weren't doing that. They were gullible. And the apostle ones is not to be gullible and simple to examine things. And if they didn't understand, they should have gone to the true teachers in the church, 
to have them explain to them what was going on and not outsiders that were coming in telling them different things. So that's what Paul wanted to make them aware of. Verse 7, they turned aside, verse 6, fruitless discussions. 7, they want to be teachers of the law. Yeah, Judaizers. See, they think that's more important. They want to bring the Gentiles under their control. And yet they always thought the Gentiles were a subspecies. Even under the law, they had to be baptized and sprinkled, and they were never treated fully as a Jew. Outwardly they were, but they still had a sort of their second-rate citizens. They had to conform to the law and be circumcised and come under their control. And Paul was saying Gentiles... Christians are not subject, that those things have been abolished and don't listen to it. So these Judaizers, they want to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand what they're saying on the matters about which they are talking about. See, they don't even know how to properly interpret the law of Moses, even the ceremonial, which they should have known if they were priests, but the Pharisees, some of them weren't, and they were adding all their rules and traditions, and they wanted to do the same thing here. He said they claim to go back to the law, and they don't properly understand the law. They don't understand what they're talking about, and they want you to join them. So that's why he had no pity on the Judaizers. May they slip and castrate themselves rather than circumcise a Christian Gentile. That was Paul's thought. That was God's thought. See, he's speaking for the Lord. He was not reproved. He could say things, and he could judge, and he could turn people at times over to the devil. That was apostolic authority to do certain things because he was laying the foundation of Christianity, building on what the 12 apostles laid, and he was building the foundation up more sure, and that's what he did. Okay. He said, they don't understand these things. These people want to be teachers to you of the law. They were Judaizers. They try to bring you under Moses' rules and rituals and many of the Pharisaical rules and rituals. When Jesus came along, the Pharisee had over 600 rules and regulations. The law of Moses gave about 50. So it showed, And they would put their traditions they lay aside the word of God to emphasize their denominations do that. That's why many of them are damned. That's why you cannot follow them solely. You have to judge and say, ah, I don't believe this. Can't do this. Okay. Moses' rules and regulations had been abolished or fulfilled. No use to the new covenant in Christ. They could acknowledge Jesus, some as Savior, these Judaizers, but insisted on circumcision and law. So they talked out of both sides of the mouth. Well, you can have Jesus as Savior, but if you're not circumcised to keep the law, you can't be saved. Well, there we go. Out of both sides of the mouth. Not hundreds of ceremonies, rituals, the keeping of certain days that the law of Moses demanded certain things like this. Okay. But eight, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. 
Now he's talking about also mainly the moral law, but he's telling us that the rules and regulations and ceremony, they've been fulfilled. And so if you're going to teach that, you have to teach it served its purpose. And that's what he wanted to understand its purpose. It was a schoolmaster to bring one to faith. Need had been fulfilled. It was no longer needed. The law, we'll see, it was different. Faith takes over. Faith in Christ and his sacrifice and his resurrection and his ascension brings us to the place that we have no need of these ceremonies, these rituals, and these keeping of days and such. We can still go back as a Christian and learn what they symbolize and where their fulfillment was and what they meant. And we can treasure that and say, that's good, but we're not bound to it, okay? But the moral law of the Ten Commandments, they still stand. All Ten Commandments are included and living in Christ in a new covenant. Even the keeping of the Sabbath, but not as a day, some weak Christians, they still uh, have to go to church on Sunday because God made Saturday, Sunday. Ain't no such teaching. But they gathered on the first because it was a resurrection day. But they were not bound by this. Paul said, I'm afraid of you because he talked to some of the Galatians, because you observe days and months and Sabbath. You've been freed from that. And so the, the Christian, if you read the law, Ten Commands, he can't do one of those and live in it and make it to heaven. He can't be an adulterer, a murderer, a blasphemer, a liar. If he practiced that, he won't make it. He's not. Paul said he, he'll not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And the Sabbath keeping, we've entered in to a different Sabbath. Let's go real briefly to Hebrews chapter 4. But there are ministrations in the churches and gatherings, and churches locally, then and now, they can choose to worship on certain days that might be more convenient. Everybody in the town might work and have to work on that day because of their jobs. Well, they can pick a day, another day, and say, we'll worship then. A lot of people say, oh, we got to worship on Sunday. Well, you're weak in the faith, I hate to tell you. You don't properly understand. You should have been mature by now, okay? Hebrews 4, 9 and 10. There remains, therefore, a rest, a Sabbath, for the people of God. That's the Christian. For he who has entered his Sabbath has himself ceased from his works as God did from his. So the Christian lives an eternal Sabbath. He doesn't work for himself. It's Christ working in him. It's a spiritual realm. He's not obliged not to do this and not to do that as the Jew was. Jew couldn't travel. He couldn't eat certain things. He couldn't do certain things on the Sabbath. Well, the Christian could do something, do good anytime. He overrides any day. He can lay aside it for the kingdom of God. He's in a different realm. And he says there remains a Sabbath, but ours is a spiritual Sabbath. We live in an eternal Sabbath, and we rest in God. And it's not our works and labors, it's Christ in us. We have the freedom. And this is what it says where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Okay, and that's the liberty the Christian has. Okay, so the law has its purpose. 
and it can be used for good. So I think we'll stop here if we only have a little bit more time. We'll continue. But the law is good if it's used properly. We'll find out that the law had its basics on the foundation to prepare for the second covenant. Because the law, in all of its order and ritual and commands and being holy, it could not change a person's spirit. It could not forgive sin in itself. That's why sacrifice had to come. These were symbols. But when a person came into the new covenant, the spirit of the law came into them. Christ entered them. And they were not bound by the old ritual. And Christ helped them to serve and please the Lord by indwelling them. The law could not do this. So we'll elaborate more on this in our next lesson. Lord, give us wisdom and understanding and practical instructions in Christ's name. Amen.